I still want to keep this part of England with me, even though we suffered so much there. I still want to feel like I've got home with me. I just wanted to always feel comfortable. No matter where I was, I wanted to feel like everything had its place, including me. Welcome to the Ideas of Order podcast, designed by California Closets. This is the show dedicated to answering the question, what does home mean to you? I'm Jeremiah Brent, and with the help of some of my closest friends, we are ready to open our doors to you. Community. It's such a privilege to have, yet often, unfortunately, so hard to find. Can you remember the first time that you found yourself surrounded by others that deeply resonated with you? Whether you met a group at school or saw someone on TV and immediately thought, you know, they understand me. There's really no greater gift than finding people whose presence and authenticity make you feel a little less isolated in the world. When was the first time that you discovered your community? It's this warmth of like-minded individuals that can really lead us to confidence and encourage us to dream. Today, I am incredibly privileged and so excited to be joined by someone whose daily energy is imbued with the essence of style itself. Somebody whose commitment to inclusivity and betterment through design has made them a powerhouse, both in front of the camera and behind the scenes. A person who's known for their work on Netflix Queer Eye and Next in Fashion, his 2019 memoir, Naturally Tan, as well as founder and creative director of accessible outerwear brand was him. Please join me in welcoming designer, author, stylist, father, television superstar, entrepreneur, a man of exquisite intention, and one of my dear friends, Tan France. Hello, my love. How are you? <laughs> Good. Are you tired of me yet? It's been like 48 hours since I've seen you. I know. Not at all. I can never get enough. Listen, I want people to know that this is not something that Tan likes to do. Come on and talk on a podcast, but he did it for me, and I am very grateful. I say no to literally 99%. Why do you not like them? You know, it's not that I don't like them. I just think, gosh, hasn't everyone heard everything, I, almost everything I have to say? And because I do so many interviews, legit, Jeremiah, I do maybe two or three a day, and I have done for... Five and a half years. Well, hopefully today. Today's not going to feel like that. Just two gals catching up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. When it's a friend, it's so different. And so I only say yes to people I actually know in real life. Well, you know everybody and you're friends with everybody. So have fun with that. (laughs) So to start things off, I wanted to take us back a few years and talk through, you know, while developing your... I would describe it as keen aesthetic and creative sensibilities. Were there any crucially pivotal spaces of your younger life that really helped shape your trajectory, either personally or aesthetically? I'm just interested to know as you moved through your earlier life, was there a space that you felt the most held in? I was raised in a house in a place called South Yorkshire in England with seven people total. But they were the people that just lived there. It was full of other people regularly. But our house, 
I had seven people residing in it, but only three bedrooms. And so the house was very full and it was a tiny house. We were not raised in a house of money and we shared rooms. Like I shared a room with my brother and my parents until we were nine, which seems bananas now. And because my older siblings were considerably older, my eldest brother is 10 years older. So they were teens. So the house was just full of stuff. I remember laundry was always everywhere. My mom couldn't keep up. She was working a full, a very much full-time job. She was working an average of 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And so it was just hard to maintain a tidy house. Uh, so our house also had a shop attached, like a bodega. And that was our family business, one of our family businesses. And so I remember even from a young age thinking, gosh, one day I would love to have a house where everything has its place. And then when we were nine, we moved to a different area closer to my school. And that was the first time where it felt like this is what life could be. We had an extra two rooms. So five bedrooms in a house was just bananas for us. I started to share a room with my brother, but it was our space and he was respectful of my space. And so at that point, it made it really clear what I wanted. And I just wanted to always feel comfortable no matter where I was. And not just in my physical home space, but comfortable in general. I wanted to feel like everything had its place, including me. Was there a room that you remember growing up that was like significant to you or like just a space? I was actually about to say our kitchen, especially in the house that we lived in until the time when I left home. The kitchen had this dining table with a bunch of mismatched chairs because we just needed seven chairs. Who cares if they match? The kitchen was such a space of love, which is so often the case with every culture, but in South Asian communities, that kitchen served hundreds of people. We had people in and out of that house constantly. We always had aunts, uncles, cousins, and nobody ever expected an invitation. You just open the door. You don't even knock. Just open the door and come in and sit down. And it's as if you lived there also. And so that kitchen was a space where my mom, my aunts, my grandmas would hang out in that kitchen. We'd all sit around the table. We'd all be preparing the vegetables. And I started cooking at a really, really early age. I was just fascinated by it. So by the age of nine, 10, when we lived in this house, I was helping snap green beans. I was helping get the cauliflower ready. I was helping prepare the meat. And so that space in particular has such fun memories. And it was such a place of absolute love. It sounds like a happy house. It was so happy. It was so happy. And my mom was and is incredible. And she taught me so much. She's the reason why I've become the person I've become, especially in the kitchen. My love language, I want to prepare food for people to show them how much I love them. And I still do that. I didn't know that about you. I'm obsessed with cooking too. You really buried the lead here. Next time you're in town, you guys are just coming to the house and we'll cook. I would love. Let's do it. I want to show you how to make incredible Indian food. I'm not interested in eating Italian with you. What do you mean? Of course. (laughs) I read that your grandparents, they owned a denim factory in England. And is it right that when you were 13, you could construct and embellish a denim jacket? Kind of, yes. I could do it before that. I could definitely do it from around 10 or 11. But by the time I hit 13, it was the kind of 
finish that could be sold in a store, but I could pretty much do it well before then. It just wouldn't have passed all quality control, but it would have been perfectly sufficient for any of us who wouldn't know, oh, that stitch isn't quite the right length or that stitch is slightly different from that stitch. But yes, I could pretty much uh, create a garment very easily at that point. How did you fall into fashion? What was it about, about it that interested you? You know, for me, it wasn't one, but there were a couple that really do stand out. So the factory, for sure, I had this window into a world that almost nobody my age had. I mean, I can't imagine at the age of seven or eight, you knew where your clothing was coming from, like where it actually came from, not just the store. Whereas I had this knowledge that I thought was invaluable. I could see this piece of fabric and I knew that that could turn into the thing that somebody was going to wear. And so that really molded my idea of what fashion or style could be. From a really young age, again, we didn't have much money. So we borrowed a lot from the library or we would go to the library a lot. So we weren't allowed to watch a shocking amount of TV in my early years. The irony. I know. In my early years, <laughs> believe me, later on in life, I became a full-on TV addict. But early on, yeah. my parents encouraged us to read books. And so we'd go to the library. However, I wasn't interested in reading the books. I wanted to look at the fashion magazines. And there was this magazine called Collezioni, which doesn't exist anymore. I remember. Oh my God, I loved Collezioni so much. They would show every look from every major designer. And so I would flick through those magazines. And I remember changing multiple times a day when I was at home. So my mom said, you were definitely my strangest child because for every birthday or religious holiday, you weren't asking for the things that anyone else was asking for. You were asking for money. You were asking for candy. You were asking for this one thing in particular. And as soon as she said it, I said, I know exactly what you're going to say. I was asking for a black silk shirt with gold buttons. <laughs> I, I asked for it for so many years and I wanted her to have it made, even though we couldn't ever have afforded to have that anything made. We couldn't afford tailoring. But I asked for it every year for years and years and years because I'd seen a version of it on a Versace runway in Collezioni. <laughs> I, um, I was inspired by so much. And then also because I wasn't really allowed to wear Western clothes at home, right. I would see all the kids at school on Dress Down Fridays wearing things that I thought, oh, that's nice. That shows who you are, whether it was Thundercats or uh, Care Bears. We didn't have any of that. And so I remember using the things from the factory that were faulty, which I had definitely fucked up so I could keep. Um, I would use those pieces to rework looks that I would wear around the house to make myself feel nice and to feel like, oh, I get to show my personality too. And really what I realized now is that I was wearing things that were very fab for a a seven-year-old Pakistani boy. (laughs) It was a lot. But yeah, it was my way of expressing myself. So fashion was always it for me. How did you go from studying fashion, working as a designer in all these major stores in the UK, and then you moved to the United States. How was that? So moving to the US was always the goal. I used to watch ER, Beverly Hills 9021 on all those shows. (laughs) And when I was a kid, I always knew England was not my home. 
Life was really shitty, like really shitty in a small town where a Pakistani Muslim family where there are only a few other families that look like you. Constant harassment. Were they racist? Really, really shockingly racist. Wow. Don't get me wrong, there were wonderful people also in the small town. Of course. But they're not the ones who are usually screaming from the side of the street, we love you so much, you're welcome here, you're, you, this is your home too. It was the mean people who were the ones shouting on the street. Wow. We were constantly physically and verbally attacked for being people of color. The racism was just insane. So it definitely didn't feel like a safe place. And therefore, if you don't have safety, that doesn't feel like home. Mm -hmm. uh, even from the age of five or six, my mom made it so clear when you go to school, so our school was literally the next block over. So I would go with my brother. She had to make it so clear, you must walk near a white lady. You must, must, must always find someone white to stand next to, especially a lady, especially if she's got kids. Because if she's got kids, hopefully she won't let you get beaten up. And often it was by grown men, like grown men would attack. They would just kick you from behind and watch you struggle to get all like crap like that. And so from a, such an early age, it became clear that this wasn't my home. Mm -hmm. And so I needed to find somewhere better. And then there was this fantasy of what America was, which now I live here, I understand that that was absolutely just the fantasy. But when you're a kid, all you see is the gloss. Because um, mm -hmm. gosh, 90210 and Melrose Place, they were all so glossy. Really fucked it up for us. I know, we like, I know. I know. Yeah. Um, but I was like, gosh, I want to go to that. Like, I, that's where I think I'll be okay. And so I decided to move to America. I was working for multiple companies. They were all under this one company called Inditex, which owns Zara and a bunch of other brands. So I was living in New York in my really early 20s for a really short stint, six months. So I was staying with a housemate who was from Utah. I'd never heard of this place, Utah. He was Mormon. <laughs> I didn't know what that was. I assumed they were Amish. Yeah. <laughs> he suggested that I go check out Utah with him. I fell in love with it immediately, but I wanted to make sure that I would have work there. And so I found a clothing company, a brand that was produced out of Utah, and it was a modest clothing company for Mormon women. It was the only brand that was available. And I thought, okay, I'm going to apply for a job and see if they'll have me. And I think they were just in shock that this person who had quite a lot of experience of major brands was applying for work. And so they gave me a job on the spot. And so that's how I got into fashion in America. That business taught me so much because it was a small company, but it was a multi-million dollar company. And they did everything in-house except for production. And so I learned so much. And then when that business sold, I decided to start my own businesses. The rest is history. Yeah, I ended up with four businesses. I designed all the product myself. It was the first foray into my world of fashion. It's really fascinating to listen to where you grew up and what your family had to manage. And then conversely, the energy of what happened inside your house and the community and the kindness and the connection, which makes sense, you know, as we kind of start to dig into the present because that's who you are. And I feel like you still represent that as a person, the way you move through the world. That is a perfect way to articulate who you are. So your mom should be very proud. Never mind of your success, but just of who you are. I would like, yeah, I would like to believe she's proud. She raised, honestly, good kids. My, my siblings, my family are just, they're really good people. But it's because you articulated it beautifully, everything that was going outside the house, they were the perfect counterbalance. And because when you experience such difficulty and hardship and racism and all those things as a kid, it teaches you such radical compassion. And you just think, I'm never going to let somebody feel like this. I'm never going to make somebody feel like this. And so 
it has all led to what I do in the public eye, which is just treat people kindly and just help them tell their unique story and not judge them for who they are. I mean, I have to say your success over the last several years is pretty much, I mean, there's no other word for it other than transformative from Netflix to fatherhood and beyond. And now you have spaces. I'm interested to know like how your spaces of support have evolved with you. You know, do the spaces that hold you today resonate with the present tense tan France? You know, if we're talking about emotional spaces as opposed to physical spaces, I kept every important part of my life from England with me, even though they're not physically with me. I'm still so involved in my family's life, they're involved with mine. I can speak to my sister every day for two or three hours, and I often do speak to her every day for two or three hours. Same with my brothers, I will speak to them at least once a week. And that is the emotional space that I've always needed. I've needed my family, my extended family. And so that is my emotional space. As far as physical space, well, actually it was just before Queer Eye. I purchased this home that I'm in right now. And I would have a lot of bad times in America my first seven or eight years because I wasn't a permanent resident. I was on a temporary visa. And so I was coming and going every three months. I would leave and then I would come back for three months. And so we would walk around this neighborhood in this one street in particular. There was this house. And for seven years, we walked around this neighborhood every few days, weeks, months. And I would say, one day I'm going to buy us a house on this street and we'll retire here and this is our dream. And we will have our children and this is where we will live and die. Seven years after that, this home came on the market and we ended up purchasing it. I was in the middle of shooting the first month of Queer Eye. I couldn't physically come and see it. And I FaceTimed Rob and the realtor and they were like, don't want this house. It's an absolute got like it's horrible inside you're going to need to renovate completely i was like we're taking it and the realtor and rob were like no 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 i was like we're we are taking that house i don't care what needs to be done that is our dream we will turn it into something amazing and so since then this has been a space of gosh so much love and also this house is so important to me in particular because i'm seldom here i spent 16 days in my own home last year and so when i come home there's something that this house does to me that gives me this calm that I don't experience anywhere else in my life. What do you think it is? I think it's a reminder of what life was before things got crazy. So we shot Queer Eye and then uh, the show didn't come out until a year later. And so yeah, I think it's the reminder of what how calm and normal life was. And my husband and my son are so grounding for me when we're traveling, when we're away. We're living this dream life. We're usually in a space that Netflix has put us up in or a house that they've rented. We have security that Netflix arranges. We've got clothes that somebody's arranged for me. That's that's not my normal life. And so being back here, it just feels safe. It feels good. It feels normal. It feels all the things that are the opposite of what I do outside my home. Describe the style of the house to me, just so people can imagine it. The house is a Tudor home. It's brick at the bottom half. The top half is white and black. Same. It's, a, <laughs> it's, a, it's the, a house from 1906. It's one of the oldest neighborhoods in Salt Lake. So it's a very old neighborhood with beautiful big trees lining the streets. And then the house inside is actually relatively classic. It's a simple home. 
it looks like a cottage inside. The rooms are small. It's not a big house. It's two and a half thousand square feet. It's not by Utah standards. It's not a big house. Every room feels almost like a cottage. It has original arches, has original doors, has original fireplaces. It's lovely. It's not a fancy pants celebrity home. Yeah, it's funny. I think people would imagine on the surface if they saw just the, how fabulous you dress, which I hate that word, but I used it, <laughs> um, how fabulous you dress and how contemporary you dress with your style, they'd expect your house to be the same thing. But it's the complete opposite, which is what I love about you. Gosh, I hate to always take it back to being a kid, but the people that were successful, and for those of you who aren't watching, I just did air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> um, The people who were successful in my hometown lived in old Tudor homes. That's very typical for my small town. And so there's something that was always really aspirational about it for me. And so, yes, a modern home is gorgeous. And I love modern homes. Your home's gorgeous. And every other home I see on Art Digest that's a modern home, I think, yeah, that's really pretty. But that feels so American to me. And as much as I am an American... I still, I want to keep this part of England with me, even though we suffered so much there. I still love the country. I thought it was beautiful. And I still want to feel like I've got home with me. We're in the business of coming out of the closet, but we've got to dive into yours because everybody listening to this is going to want to understand what does your dressing room at home look like and feel like? Is it the size of a football field? Is it organized <laughs> by color? Well, how, how do you, what's your dressing room like? This will come as no surprise to anyone who has known me from anything I've ever done publicly. I am very Taipei. <laughs> yes, you are. Which means that everything absolutely has a place. So my closet is the top floor of the house. There were gables and then there's the vaulted ceiling. So one section is all hanging, it's a long runway, and then the other side is all drawers, and it's my dressing area. The closet itself is like 700 square feet, it's relatively large. I think it's beautiful. If anyone's curious, you can just Google Tamprat's closet, you'll see pictures of it, it's very pretty. Actually, it's not, it's very handsome. As the designer called it, very handsome. Everything is categorized, all button-up shirts together, all t-shirts together, all suits together. Everything goes from white to black. My shoes are all color-coordinated, but they're broken down into sneakers, dress shoes, boots, Everything is organized. Well, if that little kid in the UK could see now. If that little tan, if I could speak to him just for a heartbeat to go back and say, all of this is okay. It's horrible right now, but life is going to get so beautiful for you. And you are going to appreciate these struggles because it's going to turn you into who you are. That would be mind-blowing. I would love to speak to him to say it's going to be okay. I will tell you that you're saying that to thousands of kids that are, that are getting that affirmation now, which you should be very proud of. You know, it's the thing I'm the most proud of, actually. As much as I'm proud of the hard work that we put in, I'm proud of my son and my husband and nurturing a, a, a good home. The thing I'm most proud of truly is doing something that really hopefully will encourage kids who would never have believed a life like this is possible for them. We had some white representation on TV for the queer community. We never, ever had my people. There's 2 billion South Asians in the world. We're a quarter of the planet. Yet there were none of us on TV. None of us on a big show. They would shove us in to the darkest abyss of TV or entertainment and think, well, we gave them something. 
And so, especially when Queer Eye first came out, gosh, I received at least a thousand DMs a day, minimum, for about four years. And so many of them were kids from marginalized groups, well, in particular from South Asia or Muslim communities of kids saying, we never thought that we could live freely and happily and open life until we saw somebody like you on our screens. I could not do anything bigger than that. It feels lovely to think that my legacy might be that I encouraged South Asians to believe that they are absolutely equal to everybody else. And then those queer kids could have a life that's good and free. It feels amazing. All of that is heavy and it's great and it's beautiful, but it's also a lot of responsibility. Are there any rituals that you practice for yourself in your home? Is there a space in your home that tethers you to yourself? So the first six months of Queer Eye coming out, I got a lot of abuse, a lot of love, which was so kind, but a heck of a lot of abuse. People didn't want to see somebody like me on TV encouraging their kids to believe that they can be happy the way they are. And so with all that abuse online, I just thought I want to find a way to make myself feel better and like I'm not the devil. I started doing this thing. If you want to try anyone out there, try it. The first few days, you're going to feel so (laughs) American, (laughs) which is often so cheesy. I can say that now, I'm an American citizen, but Americans are often quite cheesy. But after you've done it for a few days, you really feel the benefit. When I brush my teeth in the morning, I do it in my underwear only. And I look in the mirror and I, in my mind, tell myself, all the things I like about my personality and I like about my physical appearance. I don't focus on the negative because some douchebag throughout the day will tell me the things that aren't great about me inevitably. So they'll do that for me later. I want to be able to focus on the things that actually do make me valuable. And that really, no joke, it changed my life. It almost arms me for the day thinking, yeah, all right, you random man think this of me. But every day I've told myself that this part of me is valuable. This part of me is great. You can't knock me down. There's something really beautiful to the symmetry of seeing you as a little boy and that household with that energy to now you being an adult in your household with that same energy, which makes me wonder, you know, What does the future look like for you? You know, how do you hope your home was going to evolve in the future? Like, what's important for Tan in this next phase? I think that anyone in our world would think that the way you achieve that happiness and success is getting on another big show, getting this amount of money, doing this and that, this and that. For me, what I hope is my future is, yeah, continued success at work is always nice, but... The thing that I want more than anything is to just have more children and raise good children and continue to have a really happy marriage and focus on taking care of my husband and reminding him how loved he is by me. Yes, there are things that we want. We're building a house right now that hopefully will be our forever dream home. This one, unfortunately, can't be it because of security issues. But we want to create a home for our children and our grandchildren that just feels like the home that I was raised in, the home that Rob was raised in. All the work crap, the stuff that people see in the public eye that I do, all of that is just my job. 
my life isn't my job. That's literally just my job. Within the next year, I'm easing off some of the work that I'm doing. I'm saying no to a heck of a lot more. And that's serving me so well already. Good for you. Obviously, the home that you're crafting is going to take all of these experiences past, present, and now as you kind of build out the future. The home that we're building will feel like everything that we represent and what we experienced as kids. It's going to feel a bit American. It's definitely going to feel very English. It's going to feel South Asian also. My son, he is half South Asian, half Pakistani, half white. He's part American, part English. I want him to feel all of those things and be immersed in all of those things. I don't want to have him feel like he's just one of those because not one part of what he represents is more important than the other. And I want the home to reflect that also. We've reached um, the part of our show where we get a little bit cozier. Great. I've got a few more questions for you. Quick fire questions. On the ideas of order, we have a lot to say about the concept of comfort and growth, both in the home and obviously in life. And so for this fireside tete-a-tete, it's just you and me and a couple quick questions to dig in deeper. Okay, you ready? Yeah, always. <laughs> what has home taught you? Home has taught me love like nothing else. No act from anywhere else, no act of kindness from somebody else teaches me love like home does. And whether that's my old home with my family or my home with my husband. What is the most surprising space you've ever loved? (laughs) The most surprising space I love now, weirdly, is a studio. (laughs) If you had told me even five years ago that I'd be comfortable enough anywhere on television or in entertainment to say that I love it, I'd be shocked. It was so daunting at first, but now I love being on set. Yeah, there's nothing better than a studio job. Nothing better than a studio job. You can control everything. I get to say what the temperature should be. Isn't that bananas? I get to order lunch from wherever I want to order lunch from. If I'm feeling tired, I can take a quick nap in my own green room. There are so many perks for studio. If I never do anything else again other than a studio show, I'll be over the moon. You only know if you're on location, folks. When do you feel the most at home? This is going to sound so weird. I feel the most at home when I'm a tiny bit sick, so I can't do any work. I've cancelled all meetings or whatever. Nanny can't come in even though we love her so much. And it's just me, Rob, and the baby. Best thing in the world. Truly the best thing in the world. Watch bad TV, eat food that I don't ordinarily eat if I was feeling better like junk, dream, absolute dream. You know, we know better than anybody that everybody just wants to be loved and to be seen. And you're creating that echo for people to see themselves, not only through you, but you're giving people the confidence and the safety in their own living rooms to see parts of the world, see different types of love that they're not exposed to. So we are really grateful that you chose to share it all with us because we all adore you. Thank you. You're the best. Thank you, my love. I love you very much. You're the best. Thank you. Thank you. It's in the spirit of community that I hope to live my life in such a way that I can be the example that I wish I had when I was young. My greatest wish is that my career and my family validates any young person who doesn't think those dreams can be for them. Isn't that what life is all about? (laughs) 
Join me on our next episode where I talk to designer, culinary storyteller, and New York Times modern day Martha Stewart, Athena Calderon, about the joy of embarking on new journeys and the bittersweet element of bidding farewell to a well-loved space. For more Ideas of Order, please visit ideasoforder.com or californiaclosets.com. I'm Jeremiah Brent. You guys, thank you so much for being here today, and we'll see you again soon. Until I left the house, I assumed Chinese food was English food, pizza was English food. And it was only when I started living with somebody else and I'd say, oh, we should have English food tonight. And we'd get Chinese. And my friends would be like, we think you might be a little dumb. Just a little ignorant. <laughs> Another Everything Podcast production. Visit everythingpodcast.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast.